Food is fuel for your body, your mind, and definitely your sport. But let's face it, nutrition is confusing and the expectations on girls and women to be thin and have a six pack are exhausting. If you've ever been frustrated with your body, confused about nutrition, obsessed with eating healthy or guilty when you don't, underate, overate, or overtrained and overwhelmed with all the pressure, then this podcast is for you. Nutrition can be easy. You can take control of it, but it might start with letting go of control by asking for help and making a change. I'm Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, sports dietitian and owner of Rise Up Nutrition, where I empower female athletes to overcome nutrition concerns and perform at their highest level, to stop being confused by all the mixed or harmful messages, and finally have confidence in your body as a fierce, fit, and fueled female athlete. Hello, fans. Lindsay Elizabeth Cortez, your host of this podcast, sports dietitian. And today I have Dr. Sarah Zimmer-Cheskin. She is a sports medicine orthopedic physical therapist who loves working with runners, climbers, and recreational athletes of all types. Through biomechanics and understanding human movement, Dr. Sarah uses hands-on treatment and corrective exercises to help people move better, feel better, and get back to the activities that they love to do. When she's not being a physical therapist, Dr. Sarah loves trail running, biking, climbing, cooking, and being the last person on the dance floor. So welcome, Dr. Sarah. Thank you so much, Lindsay, and thank you for having me. Of course, I'm really excited to talk. I feel like you and me are both like all smiles and and bubbles today, so I think this will be a fun conversation. Yeah, yeah, I'm really, really excited. I I know I told you before, I've been listening to your podcast for a while now. So when I was asked to be on, I like just, I've been looking forward to today. Yay. I'm so excited. Yeah. I think every once in a while I interview guests and I'm like, I like, I love all guests that we interview, but I think there's a lot in your career field as a physical therapist that really overlaps in your like approach to treating clients that overlaps with probably my approach to treating clients. And so I'm really excited to share this with our listeners. And I thought we could kind of kick this conversation off with just asking you, where did your passion for movement and the physical body and treating people through movement and injuries like come from? Yeah, I love sharing that story. So thanks for asking. I I guess it it all started with, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just kind of grew up being a really active kid, like just cause I loved playing, you know, I was always in sports, like volleyball, basketball, softball, like just kind of grew up doing all those things. And what's funny is in all of that, I hated like just running. <laughs> it's like, no, there has to be like a point involved or ball. But I, yeah, I just, I grew up just having a lot of fun with team sports and then in college, got into running and fell in love with it. Like it, the part about like having time for yourself, getting outside, and then even finding a community and friends in that space was really fun. But how it kind of transitioned into my profession, I think having the sports minded, like passions, if you will. And then my mom works for an orthopedic surgeon in a hospital. And I had gotten to like shadow some of that. And her office was next door to physical therapy. So I got to see some of that. And then when I got into anatomy in school, fell in love and I was like, all right, I think I know what I want to do. (laughs) And physical therapy, like people ask me too, like, well, there's so many avenues, like why physical therapy? And, you know, learning about anatomy and learning about all the sports and ways I've gone about playing and moving my body. I just, 
have really found it so, so cool and rewarding to just analyze how people move. And I, and now in the physical therapy world, like using that movement to help people get back to things that they love to do just by learning more about their bodies. Like I think we, we detach ourselves a lot from our bodies, myself included, and we separate our mind and our body. And sometimes that's kind of where some of that dysfunction comes in or as we get into sport or running, we're always like pushing ourselves and punishing ourselves, which has pros and cons to it too. But it's, it's always really rewarding and fun for me to go back and like, okay, like these activities are awesome, but we have to bring yourself back into your body and teach you like the more qualitative ways to be moving to support all these things you want to do. So that's kind of where it came from. I love that. And my mind is kind of going a mile a minute with just how you were saying as humans, we <laughs> kind of can detach ourselves from our bodies. And um, yeah, like I said, my mind's going a mile a minute because I'm thinking about some recent conversations I've had with my clients in particularly in regards to more like body image and stuff. Like even that, I feel like when we yeah. struggle with body image is actually we're like feeling very detached. We're not feeling like one with ourselves. We're not feeling comfortable in, in our own bodies. And and that's a difficult process. I know this is different than like, but, but it's not that different. It's how can you- It's not. Really right. be, yeah, be like, be one with your body. <laughs> it's a really challenging thing to learn and it affects your body image. It affects how your body moves, therefore your health, your sport and how you're going to excel in that. It's a lot, it goes kind of deep. I completely agree. I love that you make that connection because I think, and I think body image can have different layers to it. Like I've struggled definitely with my own like body image and body dysmorphia things in the past, but I, I think the levels of it, it doesn't always have to be an aesthetic struggle. I think that a majority of it can be like how it looks from the outside, but there's also, as it relates to movement and injury, like you start to, maybe you look at it a certain way, you start to not trust your body, especially as like certain ailments or aches and pains become chronic and we start to not be able to trust. I feel like I hear that a lot. Like, well, I sprained my ankle. So this is just, I don't trust this foot all the time when I land on it. Or I don't know if my hip is going to tolerate running, like hiking a pill or running a pill. This is actually something I wanted to talk to you about today. <laughs> well, perfect. perfect. <laughs> um, that like, because one of the things I wanted to get to was just how you help an athlete return to sport and stuff like that. And we can get into more specifics, but one of the things that literally one of my clients this morning, she's getting back to return to running after bone injury, stress injury. And she's just scared. It's like, I'm just nervous. I don't trust my body yet. And now there's a psychological component to that, but just as a physical therapist, like how, how do you help people navigate finding that trust in their body again? Yeah. You know, oh gosh. Yep. I love this question. I love this conversation. It's, it's really interesting. And I, I navigate it differently, obviously for different people and, and where that trust comes from. I think one of the main questions I have to, I have to ask somebody is where that distrust is coming from. Is it, is it from like, is it from the physical sense? Like you just, you don't trust your, your hip or your body to do X activity or to do X thing. Like, that becomes really true for someone post-surgery. Maybe they just had their ACL reconstructed and like they heard it playing like landing wrong. And so now they just have this fear of like jumping or landing or whatever. So there is sometimes that physical component, but when someone says they don't trust it, 
it's really picking apart those layers. Like where, where does that mistrust come from? And if it's from a, a body image sense, like maybe it looks different, it feels different. And in that it feeling different and, and whatever, is that creating the trust? Like how do we talk through that? Sometimes it's in the physical therapy, like in my office, it is through movement a lot of the times. I, I try to expose myself or sorry, expose my patients to what it is that's causing that mistrust. So is it a particular movement? Is it a position? Okay. Like let's together. This is a safe space. I'm here. Let's do this. And you can see that your hip or your knee or whatever can tolerate this. Like you can do it. You can do it. I think what's really interesting is that that worry man, our emotions play into what we feel, especially injury-wise and pain. Like those emotions and those fears can exemplify what we feel. And if we remove that and expose ourselves to things that are scary, I think we can remove a lot of that and feel so much better. And I think that's a huge value of going through a rehab process, like on site with a PT in person for whether it's your first time doing a, a movement or activity, or just to have that that second person and the professional say, yeah, that the form looked good. Everything was right. You're feeling okay. And it, it'll build your confidence as you're getting back into these movements. Yeah. And I, and I, I never want to make it seem like, Oh, Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Like I don't, I don't want to belittle anything because yes, I can put you through these physical tests. Like, can you hop up and down? Can you balance? Can you do a one-legged bridge or whatever it is? Yes, you're checking all of these boxes, but if there's still a fear and distress, like we have to untangle all of that because that will show up. Like if you do go out for a run and you're still scared, that could show up in how you're physically moving or physically choosing to do something. And, and maybe that makes you more tense or more stiff and could create either that same injury again or, or a different injury on another side. So yeah, I don't want to be little, be little, it at all because it's so multifaceted and can be complicated, but it's definitely some exposure work. Yeah. Like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Exposure work for sure. And, and to have you guiding them through that process is important. So do you, um, you like to work with runners and climbers you're in the Boulder area. So you have a <laughs> lot of those. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And running is a passion yourself. Are there any injuries that you see the most often in these communities of of athletes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially runners, I feel like that's what I see the most of, but kind of across the board. And, you know, I say runners, but especially in Boulder, people are multi-sport humans. Like we run, maybe we mainly run, but we'll cycle on off days or we'll go climbing later or what have you. Yeah. So it's, it's really, people are a lot of these things. And so what I see the most of is like the overuse kind of tendonitis type of injury or the bone stress injury, like you're talking about. And it's, it's really, really common. Like I, gosh, I remember over like the spring, like late spring, early summer, I saw a lot of like, like bone stress injuries in the foot, a lot of hip stress injuries, whether they were bone related or tendon related. And so I had made another post about like rest or recovery and what we can do to prevent some of these overuse things. And I know there's a line with overuse injuries because sometimes we just don't know when it's too much. That's just like a hard net line to navigate. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really a lot more of like the overuse type injuries more than anything. Yeah, for sure. And just to kind of touch back on your personal journey with running, you had shared that you at one point in time 
struggled a bit with red S and underfueling and disordered eating, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah, I started struggling with that that I that I recognized in graduate school actually during PT school when I was under a lot of stress and it manifested and and being a runner and so I definitely navigated an eating disorder and obviously well not obviously but for me turned into red S and underfueling and it affected my running and actually I'm still going through that. I've been dealing with hypothalamic amenorrhea for a while and I'm trying to restore that which has changed kind of my ability to be able to run or be out there. But in that journey, especially through my physical therapy eyes, gosh, it's been really, really nice. Well, I don't know what the word is. Really nice uh, is a word to be able to have that experience and then have that empathy. Because not to say that like everyone I see has those same struggles, but I think being able to have those conversations from an empathetic place, because I, because especially with bone related injuries, there usually is some sort of underfueling component, whether it's intentional or unintentional. It can definitely be both. But understanding that and having that conversation is is really important. I think as runners, we, especially at, at this level, like we don't appreciate some of those things with, you know, especially the fueling part, like you know, which is why I like was so in love with your podcast for so long. And it's it's helped me through some of those things too. So yeah, it's 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 fun and rewarding and interesting to see how much what I've gone through and that overlap happens in my office as it relates to injury. And that's exactly why I brought it up because you mentioned the the bone injuries and overuse injuries. And a lot of our bone injuries, not all, but a lot of them can be stemming from improper nutrition, intentional or unintentional. And red S, that's a huge concern. And then even overuse, again, that might have nothing to do with Red S, but it also could because maybe we're overtraining and we're, and then with overtraining, our body's not capable of fully recovering. We don't have enough nutrition to fully recover. And then that overuse injury is more likely to happen. So there can be a lot, a lot of overlap, although there's also just overuse and biomechanics causing stress injuries as well, stress bone injuries, but there's a lot of overlap. So I think it's really powerful. Again, not a, not a good thing, but in a weird sense, it's nice to have that personal experience to help your clients through it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, personal experience, but also like having like a, like a teamwork approach to stuff like this, which is why I love that we're having this conversation. And I also work with some, some dietitians in my area too, because I think it has to be, whenever we're dealing with some of these injuries, it has to be looked at from the whole perspective of nutrition, of biomechanics of all the things. I even asked my athletes about sleep and yada, yada, yada. It's just so important. And, and maybe even too, not in the, you know, Redis situation, but even I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Like from a healing perspective, I would love to be able to tell someone like, all right, these are the exercises you do. And then you take more vitamin B, you take more iron. If we want this to heal as quickly as possible, like we think we forget a lot about the like, you have to give your body fuel for it to like produce new tissues and like strong tissues. Like that has to be a part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And this is such the, the issue. I think during a time of injury, somebody's like, well, I used to run 30 miles a week. Now I'm not running at all. 
and they feel that pressure that they shouldn't be eating like they used to be. Well, your body internally is demanding more, maybe not externally, maybe we're not externally doing as much, but internally, there's a higher demand. It takes so much energy, so much protein, so many carbohydrates, so many antioxidants, so many anti-inflammatories to literally build bone or build a ligament. Like that's a lot of work if you have a tear (laughs) or something, or even just inflammation. I mean, we know in a simple, oh my gosh, this is a silly example, but like one time when my sister was in high school, she sprained her ankle and that thing was like so swollen for so long. (laughs) And it was like, how could she ever heal when it was so swollen for like, I don't know, like a month, you know? So there's so much that nutrition plays a role in helping that body with acute inflammation, with chronic inflammation. And it's a a huge, important piece of this. There's no kind of just like you and your practice, though, Sarah, how it's like, well, sure, you might for ACL rehab or bone injury have like some sort of process, but every person's going to be a little different. So it's the same thing with nutrition. I can sit here and be like, yeah, probably bone injuries. We need to look at calcium and vitamin D and we need to look at total protein and we need to look at antioxidants and anti-inflammatories, but like how much at what level with what foods or what supplements is going to be different for each person. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe feel this way too, but like also in those injuries, especially bone related and, and overuse injuries, there's also, I think we start sometimes in a hole already nutritionally. And so it's, 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 it's finding that nutrition piece that is helping you create new tissues, but also remembering you're needing more for those instances, but also you're needing more because we're probably started in a hole anyway. That's what kind of led us to this. So we have to like get in enough to get us out of that hole. And then also be able to like produce all these like new tissues and new bone and everything like you're saying. And I'll actually say in my experience in the dietitian role, helping clients get back to this, I very often get clients to a place where I'm like, okay, now you're no longer in the hole and that's great. But like now, now you're at this level where you're fueling probably how you should be as an athlete, as a female athlete. However, like we need to do more right now. And like maybe a year from now, this is your baseline that you will come back to and stay at. But it's it's even more than that to deal with the injury and the healing. And that's a hard thing for them to learn and grasp. It's hard because it's not sometimes what's ingrained in us, like, you know, from outside resources or society or whatever, but I agree with you. It's so, so important. And I love that integration between the two, like between nutrition and dietetics and then into injuries, especially when we all want to like get back out there as quickly as possible. So why, why not use all the resources and things that we have to to do that? Yeah. Yeah. And so you have this very holistic approach and, and in the clinic, it's more than just physical therapists, right? You have, or am I wrong about that? No, you're so right. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, in myself, I'm just a physical therapist. That's what my business is, but I rent a room out of this kind of sports medicine co-op, if you will. And okay. in this clinic, it's called PR Labs in Boulder and it has massage, chiropractic, there's a dietitian, there's personal trainers. So yeah, it's, it's really multidisciplinary, disciplinary, which is great. Okay. Okay. So your, your clinic is just a physical therapy, but you have all those resources right yeah. there. Do you find that you are utilizing the other resources for a lot of your clients? A thousand percent. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so great. And in even some of our clients will come in and they'll do like a hybrid approach. So they'll like go see the chiropractor and then they'll come see me and then maybe they get a massage or like they'll go 
yeah, so it's it's kind of a one stop shop, and it's really great because you're as a practitioner, you're always you know you're trying to find the best like route of care for somebody, and sometimes it's not what you offer. You have to like refer out, and so to have to know these people to have it right there, and the person just come to one's place is like has been my dream, and it's so great. <laughs> Seriously, yeah, yeah. So just want any listeners in the Boulder area, you need your one-stop shop, you need your physical therapy, go seek out Dr. Sarah. <laughs> and then and then you can get everything in that facility. So that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Hey fans, I hope you are enjoying this conversation so far and we'll be back to it in just a moment. But first, I want to pause and let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Female Athlete System of Transformation, aka the Fast Track to Overcome Disordered Eating and Use Food as Fuel to Perform at Your Highest Level. The Female Athlete System of Transformation is my unique program and proven systems to guide female athletes to understanding and implementing the proper nutrition for their sport, life, and health. Myself and my team of registered sports dietitians work one-on-one with clients to address their unique needs and counsel them through the nutritional and behavioral changes needed. Many female athletes who resonate with disordered eating, mental guilt around food and body, relative energy deficiency in sport or female athlete triad, amenorrhea, repeat injuries due to negligent nutrition, or frankly, just a lack of knowledge and understanding on their fueling needs have seen incredible success in the fast track. After years of working as a sports RD, I've compiled the most effective ways for female athletes to learn nutrition, be supported, be challenged, and ultimately find their success with fueling as fast as possible. So don't wait another day. Get to your goals faster by joining the Female Athlete System of Transformation. Look in the show notes or head to the website to book a free call and learn more. Okay, now let's get you back to the conversation. Enjoy. So you had a great Instagram post. I think it was like two months ago that you posted it. And I think it was your five-year anniversary of graduating with your doctorate in physical therapy. Yeah, yeah. And you posted about just lessons learned in your five years of the practice. And I thought it was, I honestly was like, these are some really good points that I just wanted to talk to you about on here and kind of go a little more in depth on. So lesson number one, never treat the diagnosis, treat the patient. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So what's funny is I feel like in PT school, and there's really no other way about this. You learn diagnoses. Like you learn, all right, Achilles tendonitis. This is how it presents. This is how you treat it. This is what, this is when you need surgery, blah, blah, blah. That's, I, I wouldn't know how else to do it. Like, but when you get out into the field, you just really learn that Achilles tendonitis is, if, if you just looked at someone and said like, Oh yeah, their heel hurts. Achilles tendonitis, we're going to do this. Like we've been saying with a holistic approach that will get them maybe not even 50% of the way. Like you just can't always like look at heel pain and be like, yep, this is just what you do. It's not that cookie cutter. And so I've really learned very quickly that giving someone a diagnosis, maybe it's helpful or not helpful, but if you don't look at all the other aspects, you'll miss a lot of things that are really important that the, that could get them better faster and keep it from being chronic. Because if you don't address all the other little pieces, that Achilles tendonitis could come back in like a few months of going back up to run. So yeah, mm-hmm. treat the patient. <laughs> That's huge. I'm thinking to this time period in my life in my 20s where I had really severe plantar fasciitis, very severe, and I kept getting treated for plantar fasciitis, but 
that wasn't full story because four years later, I was still struggling with plantar fasciitis <laughs> because there was more to it. There was like, well, why is she having plantar fasciitis? Like what's causing it? And that it took me years to figure it all out, which actually I'll just share really quickly. I had an extra bone in my foot. I'm already forgetting the name of it. Ostrogonum, an extra bone. Yeah. 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 No way. And so that was ultimately pro- like the source that then I had Achilles pain and then the inflammation there created bursitis and then that created the plantar fasciitis. And anyway, so yeah, it's not just one diagnosis. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm glad that you figured that out. Cause that, man, I feel like plantar fasciitis too is one of those that can just last a lot longer and be super frustrating, especially for women. It was awful. I yeah. like, I actually haven't talked about it in a long time, but that was a really difficult <laughs> time period of my life. Yes, um, I can't imagine. It, and it did end with the surgery for the bone. Then it still took another year for the plantar fasciitis to go away, but it eventually did once the root cause was there. So anyway, so, tr- so never treat just the diagnosis because there's more to the story. I love there's that. There's more. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Lesson number two, imaging is just a piece of data, not the whole story. Uh, a thousand percent. It's so, I feel like I'm learning more and more about how to use imaging correctly for my patients. Cause it, it's, it's obviously there for a reason. Like we developed this for a reason. It's a great tool, but how do we use it effectively? And the reason I posted that is, you know, there's a lot of things that show up in imaging that can just be kind of normal wear and tear. Uh, I'm using air quotes, but I guess you can't see this podcast, but yeah, it like, especially things related to our spine, like degenerative discs or sometimes they bulges or, you know, if they find, you know, a small tear in your labrum somewhere, it's just, again, it's not the full story. Like, yes, maybe it's there. I think we all have some of these degenerative changes over time as we move through life and, and do a lot of things, but it's not gloom and doom. It doesn't, always mean you need surgery. Sometimes really it means you need surgery. Like, you know, try the conservative approach first. I know I'm biased, but try the conservative mm-hmm. approach first. And a lot of the times, you know, I have patients where they'll, they'll get an image of both sides. So like they're having, I got this one patient who has left hip pain, but got both of his hips imaged and found that has impingement in the hips. The, all of the symptoms are on the left side, but the the impingement itself via image is worse on the right. Interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah. And they've done, there's been so many research articles done, a lot of this on back pain and how, you know, you have patient A with 10 out of 10 pain, yet the, what they find in, in the image is, is very mild. And then you have patient B who has like no symptoms and what they see on image is like, wow, I would do surgery if you were having a lot of pain. And, and they find that true for so many diagnoses. They've done a lot of this on arthritis, which anytime a patient comes in and they say, well, the doc told me I'm bone on bone. I'm like, no, because <laughs> that's just like, you know, I think we hear these terms like arthritis or bulging discs and it, it creates some fear and worry. And I want to reduce that as much as possible because again, there's like, there's so many factors that play into these things. And if it is normal wear and tear, we can use our bodies and our strength and our stability to support all of these things that it just is never an issue. So would you say really following the symptoms and the pain that the patient is experiencing, allowing the data to help guide you with, with that, but following the, what the patient is going through a little bit more so in some ways? Yeah. Yeah. And I do think like, I do think imaging has its place, like, especially 
if I'm if I'm dealing with a potential like stress fracture or a bone issue, I do want to get an image of it because if we're unsure, I you know, if if it's if it's a stress fracture, like I I want to know because I would I would hate for I would hate for anything to get worse. And I think I think having an MRI and and knowing that there's this, you know, if possible, I know sometimes finance finances are a barrier to getting an image and and then I think using symptoms is is our best bet, like being a little bit more conservative if we think it's a it's a, if it's a bone stress issue, but we can't get an image. But I think an image is important for those things just to know and, and be safe. And sometimes I think it can be helpful. I've had patients in the past who have like a such a chronic aspect to their pain and, and maybe that would be true for your case in the plantar fasciitis and and living in the uncertainty can sometimes make things worse. Because again, that plays to like the emotional piece and how that creates pain. And so if we live in this world of uncertainty and we're not sure, okay, like, like I'll get an image for a patient and I'll help them, I'll help talk them through what, what's going on. Like, okay, here, here's what we found. There are things we can do for it, but Hey, now we know what it is. Here's what we're going to do about it. And I think that that certainty and that like sigh of relief of like, okay, now I just, I know what it is. And there's, there, there is, I think a benefit to like just putting a name to something sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it it is really helpful because the living in the unknown is very frustrating for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Especially when you try so many different things and nothing changes. Like I think having an answer is, is good as long as you, as long as you take the information and like, okay, let's just like, just dissect this for what it is, what can be done about it. And and we're going to get you through this no matter what it is. Or if it shows nothing and it's clear, great, that's good too. <laughs> uh, but we'll really kind of, you know, change our approach or do what we need to do. But yes, that was a long-winded answer. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Uh, <laughs> lesson learned number three is the one that really caught my attention. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not always the glutes being oh. weak. <laughs> in fact, it's arguably never just the glutes. And because... Definitely in the running world. I don't know about other sports, but it's always like, oh, weak glutes. You have weak glutes. You have weak glutes. And like, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I've heard that for other people. I've probably said that to other people myself. (laughs) Like when they're having pain, I'm like, you should look into your glutes. (laughs) I've probably done that too. Um, So tell me a bit more about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I, so I put that because I, I feel bad for the glutes. I feel like they're getting all the blame. Like it's like the the older sibling maybe that just like gets all the blame for things. I I don't want to like, I don't want to discredit that there maybe is a dysfunction there (laughs) and that we do need glute activation for all the things. And it does, it does help. Like as soon as someone learns how to activate their glutes, their knees feel better. So I don't want to discredit that either. But again, to go back to the holistic approach, if I just told you to like do clamshells or monster walks and that's it, I definitely think that there's a piece to that missing because our body doesn't operate in isolation. Like, it's not like, all right, I'm just going to activate my glute and my knee will work and my foot will work and I'll feel good and I can do X, Y, and Z. But it's okay. Okay, great. You found your glutes. You learned how to activate them. Hurrah, hurrah. But like, how do I use that along with everything else? Like, how do I activate my glutes and my pelvic floor and, and my core and like then stabilize my foot and activate my arch. That all sounds complicated. It it's all good and fine and it's not. But um yeah, I just I just don't want people to get stuck in the like every it's just this or it's oh I have weak glutes. Because I also think it's unfair to tell an athlete that their glutes are weak because 
they run all the time. Like, yes, maybe yeah. they're not activating in the right ways that we need them to, but you're a strong person. So I don't want to just say like, oh, your glutes are weak. And then there's like this guilt and shame, like, oh, shoot. <laughs> which leads right into your lesson number four, which is that athletes are incredibly strong. Telling them that they are, quote, weak in certain areas feels unfair at times. Instead, teaching them correct movement patterns is key. And I really resonate with this too. Like, my first experiences with physical therapists did not go well because of exactly that. They were telling me that I was weak and I didn't want to go back to see them because I was like, I am strong AF. And <laughs> this was back in high school. And the same thing happened to me in college. Yes. And it was very frustrating. And so Honestly, it was not until grad school when I started to meet and work with, and then my professional career work with physical therapists that really understood athletes better and have really changed the my mindset and, and approach towards physical therapy. But my experiences in high school and college, I had physical therapists tell me I was weak. I had weak abs. I had weak glutes. And I was like, it really angered me because I was like, look at me squat, look at me do crunches, whatever. And not to say that that was right, but like, it just, it wasn't good. So I really appreciate this <laughs> from you to say, don't tell an athlete they're weak. Like they might need to work on a certain area, but we're not weak, you know? Yes. Know. Yes. And thank you for sharing that story. Cause I, I obviously completely agree. And it's what I thought early in my career, like in working in some of the clinics I was in, I just didn't like that mindset either. And I didn't like that, how we like kind of spent our time. It's like, well, it's because your glutes are weak. So we're going to do all the clamshells and maybe this will get better. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's again, as athletes, we need to understand that like athletes are strong. Athletes know how to get the job done, but we need to get it done with quality. So like, how do we just change like how you're moving um, and pairing again, going back to like, sometimes we come out of our bodies a little bit or we forget about our bodies. So we need to bring ourselves back in, learn how it all works. Great. I've got the strength. Here's how I can use it properly. Yeah. And and by the way, it's not to say that my physical therapists early on were wrong because they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that because when they, when going off of this glute example, your glutes are weak. I was like, look at me squat. No, they're not. <laughs> the issue was I was probably overpowering certain areas and not paying attention to the little tiny muscles that I needed to. And the same thing with the core. It was like, okay, you have abs, but you're the like the other ab muscles that are not being activated is what you need to work on. And so it's not, you know, that they were, there were certain areas that I was weak in, but it was like, it just needed to be approached differently. With <laughs> no, yeah, with I totally, me. I totally hear you. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it is there. It is a case where like, you know, what, there, there's some weakness to this. Like, I don't want to tell you, you are weak. Maybe it's like the way you say it, the way someone says it. But, and just like you said too, it was, you started to pull all the pieces out of like, well, it wasn't just because there was weakness here. It was like, there was a whole system that wasn't working together that I was starting to realize. And then like relearning how that system works is what's really important. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, so jumping ahead, we're going to skip over lesson number five real quick and go to <laughs> lesson number six, because it goes off of what you just said, like PT exercises are just a starting point. Teach your patients to find a regimen that encourages healthy uh, quality movement for a lifetime. So it's like, yeah, these, these clamshells might be a starting point and, but it's how the whole system works together that we need to work on. So I feel like yeah. And you know what? I had put that one in there for a couple of reasons that maybe weren't obvious. I've also, and I've talked about this before with some people, like 
the whole term PT exercises or your exercise program, I'm finding I'm, I'm conflicted on it in myself as a clinician. And then as a person who's gone through like the kind of red S world because of the word exercise and like, okay, especially when you work with athletes, we exercise a lot, <laughs> right? So it's like, it's also, yes, there are exercises, but I, it's, I want to get people into this mindset of like, yes, this is what we're going to do for your injury right now. But like, how do we come up with a routine that you have for life, essentially, that just like instills this like, okay, if I want to be a runner and I want to be an athlete, it, there's, it's more than just the running. Like I have to make sure I have like all the mobility I need, learn how to like come back to how to use my diaphragm and my pelvic floor, which means a little bit more like kind of calm breath work to some extent. And not that it's something that you have to do every day. Cause I think when you initially go through PT, it's like, all right, here's all your band exercises or things that you just do every day until this feels better. Yes. Maybe there's a, there's a moment where it's like that, but I, there's, we can't just like do that. Something feels better. And then that's it. Like there's no, we, there has to be some carryover and like, okay, how do we find something that works for you so that you don't come back into this office with the same problem or you try to prevent that as much as possible like i love you and i love hanging out with you but i'd rather you not be here and i know you would rather not be here <laughs> so you don't want yeah. them to be in the cycle of totally i do my pt exercises and then i forget about it and i go start my training but then i'm injured again so i do my pt exercises forget about it start my training like it there needs to be a carryover yeah there needs to be a carryover and and instead of looking at it as exercise looking at it as like well this is how my body should move and if I want my body to move this certain way and feel a certain way for this activity, I'm going to do all these things to find healthy movement to support all of that. So I can do it for as long as possible. And I've definitely, in my professional career, working with other physical therapists and strength coaches have been picking up on that terminology of using the word mobility quite a bit more. Like, And maybe this is just terminology, but like, I do think it helps. It might still be the same thing at the end of the day, but just talking about like, what's your mobility prep work before you start your run? And and it's maybe it's those quote PT exercises, but it's <laughs> making sure that you're carrying it over into your training. And I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's something I've picked up on. I love that. And I love that you bring that up because I, I think it's been a really, really good piece that's been highlighted recently because there's this framework in the movement space where you... There's three things you need. Well, three main things, I should say. You need mobility first. So especially when you're talking about movement, like you need mobility of something first, then you need to stabilize it. And then you can have this like big movement pattern or motor control. You can control it. And what's interesting about when we talk about running specifically, we forget about all the little fundamentals. Like it's, it's a, it's a sport that we don't start with fundamentals. And I've said this before, but like in basketball, you have to like spend all this time learning how to dribble. Like you don't just play games and like go into scrimmages. You got to like spend all this time doing all this other stuff. And with running, we forget that. Like we just buy shoes. We just go out for a run. We just go, especially when we're learning it. We're just like, well, I'm going to get into running. I'm going to buy a pair of shoes and just go. But like we didn't start with all the other stuff. Like you got to, you got to learn how to get good hip mobility, how to stabilize those hips, how to activate the core, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, and continue to do those things from a maintenance perspective. But yeah. Yeah, that's really insightful for sure. And we've kind of already touched on point number five or lesson number five 
I skipped over. I'm going to go back to it, but you already touched on it as we're talking about it. Oh, band exercises and stretching does not always cut it. Educating patients <laughs> about sleep, nutrition, recovery, et cetera, are all so important to rehabbing and preventing injury. These aspects are just as important as your monster walks. So you already <laughs> kind of talked about that, which is great. And so we're going to get to lessons yeah. number seven and eight, your final two lessons that you compiled. And these ones are fun, I think. Lesson number seven, you can have fun and be professional at the same time. If you aren't having fun, then what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) I wholeheartedly believe that. And I, I, I laugh a lot at work and I'm so fortunate that I can and that I do. Cause yeah, man, things would have to be serious all the time. And laughter is medicine, I think. Anyway, I love it. And I and think I'm funny. So I hope my patients do. <laughs> I, I think they will. And and you're definitely smiley in a good way too. We're both like, we both have like the biggest smiles as we're talking to each other on this We do right now. <laughs> but I also think this is an interesting point though, just since this is the female athlete nutrition podcast, there are a lot more females working in the space of athletics nowadays. And I definitely know, and I know that my Coworker Jenna, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, me and her have had conversations about this too. Like when we first started getting into the sports world, it was all about like, you have to be professional because like you're a woman in the sports world. And, and I don't know, there's just this like pressure to like draw this professional line of like, this is my job and it's separate from my personal life. And at this point in my life, I'm like, I'm over that because I am in agreement with you that you can be a professional and also be yourself. And in fact, in doing so, in my experience, that's when I'm going to be my best self and be the best dietitian I can be. And I'm sure the same for you as well as a physical therapist. But I think that's um, somewhat of a struggle that some women might still be facing in certain career fields. I experienced that getting into the sports field. So, yeah. Yeah. And thank you so much for saying that and being vulnerable about that because I've definitely felt that too, especially initially. And especially when I branched off into opening my own practice, I was like, all right. And I'm like a five foot one small woman. So I was like, all right, I definitely need to like stay professional and make a presence and be strong and blah, blah. But I think, and this is what you were saying. I think the more we can, I don't know if let go of that, but just learn how to incorporate both, like being, being myself and having fun and being goofy and making mistakes is, is a vulnerability that I think helps me be professional to be empathetic and relate. Cause I, in both of our professions, people are coming to us with such, they have to be vulnerable and, you know, maybe share some things that are scary or whatever. And if I just like maintain the sternness, it's going to be really hard for someone to really fully open up to me. And then I can't be the professional I want if someone can't feel comfortable with me. So learning to, again, not let go, but just combine both, I think has been really, really helpful, both for me as a professional and then as a person. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. And actually you said it better than me of like combine both, (laughs) maybe not to like completely (laughs) throw professionalism out the window. That's not a good idea, but yes, combine it, figure out how you can be yourself and be a professional at the same time. Yes. Um, Yeah. And that also (laughs) leads to the hilarious lesson number eight. You can wear other outfits besides polo shirts and khakis. Thank goodness. (laughs) Because I experienced the same thing as a dietitian in the sports world. It was like polo shirts and khakis only. Yes. Who? Who made that decision? I don't know. (laughs) And it's just not my style. It's not my style. (laughs) 
No, no. Thank. Oh gosh, I'm glad I'm not the only person because that's funny. It was in your profession too. It, I thought it was just a PT. Maybe it's a sports medicine thing. It's a sports medicine thing. So I think in my experiences with that was in the collegiate athletics setting. It was the polos and and khakis was the uniform. It's a sports medicine thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I they like at my PT school they. uh they did like swag once a year and most of like the professional swag was polos. And I was like, as soon as I graduate, I'm getting rid of all these polos. <laughs> I don't like them. They feel stuffy. <laughs> no. And I can still be professional wearing something else. <laughs> After a few years of working in collegiate athletics, I remember my mom, like for Christmas, bought me all these like athletic style dresses. Oh my God. Because... <laughs> She was kind of like, why do you have to wear those outfits all the time? And I was like, it's just the uniform, mom. And so I think it was for Christmas or maybe my birthday. She bought me these athletic dresses, which were really cool. And I still have like three of them in my closet because I do actually really like them. But also I was like, I, I can't wear these though. Like I still have to, like, <laughs> I have to wear the khakis. Um, but she was like, maybe you could wear this to work. And I was like, oh, I can't, but it was a good thought. And <laughs> I have been able to use those like, like Athleta brand makes like some really cool, like athletic dresses, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I do really like them, but I could not wear them at that time, but I can wear them now. So. <laughs> yes. I think they're very professional and they're comfortable. You just want to be comfy. <laughs> For sure. Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I hope our listeners enjoyed it as well. So let's end the podcast with some of our more fun questions that I'm sure you're familiar with. So, yeah. Sarah, if you could eat one food every single day for the rest of your life and never get sick of it, what would it be? Gosh, I thought this was going to be a hard question, but peanut butter. And I put peanut butter on literally everything. Like for lunch the other day, I had like a turkey sandwich and put peanut butter on it. Like I just love peanut butter and could eat it on anything. But this is a hard question to answer. Like one food, one food, peanut butter though. <laughs> yeah, it's got to be. If you're putting peanut butter on turkey sandwiches, it's got to be peanut butter. I know. I, uh, you got to try it. You got to try it. There was a, there was a place in, so I grew up in Wisconsin and in Milwaukee, there was this place. And I think a lot of places do this now that put peanut butter on burgers. It's so good. I've done. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. 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 And then I was like, well, turkey, that's just another meat on a two pieces of bread. Like it's gotta be the same thing. Delicious. Yeah. I've had a PB and J burger many a times. They're amazing. So good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I did do like a peanut butter turkey sandwich once because I had a friend in my life who did it. And I was like, well, I guess I got to I got to try <laughs> to know why you're doing this. And it wasn't bad. I haven't repeated it, but it was <laughs> but it wasn't bad. I was like, it's turkey and it's peanut butter. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. When you're in a when you're in a pinch and you're trying to get like your protein, carbs and fat. Boom, boom, boom. Good. <laughs> Making it work. All right. Peanut butter yeah. every single day for Sarah. What is your favorite sport to participate in? Yeah, that's a good question too. I think running for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. And how about as a spectator? Is it the same or different? <gasps> Ooh. Oh, I forgot about this question. Yeah, to spectate. I would say running is fun, especially the trail running I've been able to spectate. It's been super fun to spectate. I love spectating climbing and it was an Olympic sport this past Summer Olympics, and it was like really, really fun and fascinating to watch, especially speed climbing. Oh my gosh, that was super fun. And I've been treating a lot more climbers recently. So that's been really fun to, fun to spectate. You know, some of the weird, I should, oh my gosh, I should not say weird sports, but the more, um, 
sports that I don't get to see very often, you know, like curling or some of the other ones are really fun to spectate. Yeah. Something that's not as mainstream, perhaps. Yeah. Mainstream. That's a good, yeah, that's a good one. They're not weird at all, but they're fun. They're more fun. Yeah. Awesome. And if there's a female athlete out there, whether somebody well-known or someone like in your personal life that you want to give a shout out to for being a role model and inspiration or fierce, fit and fueled, who would that be? And why? <gasps> oh my gosh. Um, I forgot about this question too. There's a lot of, um, I want to get a special shout out to Megan Flanagan, who does strong runner chicks. I've been able to connect with her a lot and um, I love her podcast. I love her podcast too. I love the community. She tries to build. Um, she's a, a fear fuels athlete herself too. She's now in Colorado. So I've gotten to meet her in person. I'd love to give her a shout out. There, man, there's so many though. I'm going to leave out a lot that I love and hold dear to my heart. But I know, but let's definitely give Megan a shout out. She, yeah. um, she's been on my podcast. I don't know what episode, but That's right. search for her. Yeah. You've been on her podcast. Yeah, that's great. And um, she definitely strong runner chick. So amazing to go follow Megan. And then for all of our listeners, hope you enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Sarah Zimmer Cheskine. And thank you so much for coming on. Where can people connect with you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, people can connect with me on Instagram. So my business is Boulder Sports Physiotherapy. And my Instagram is Boulder Sports Physio please send me messages and you can connect with me and find all my posts and resources on there. Email, uh, bouldersportsphysio at gmail.com. Those are probably the best ways to, to get a hold of me. And I, I feel like I say this at the end of a lot of things or just to anybody, but like, I just want everyone to know to never hesitate to reach out. Like, even if it's just with questions or I know I've shared some of my space in like the red S and eating disorder. Like I love being a person that you can reach out to for those things. So yeah, those are probably the best ways. Awesome. Thank you so much, Sarah. Yeah. Thank you too, Lindsay. And thank you for having me. This has been really fun. I really hope you enjoyed that episode and thanks for listening. But before I let you go, I have free resources that you can have access to right away, right now, so that you can start fueling your body as a fierce, fit and fueled female athlete. First, I have your Red S recovery race. If you've ever wondered if you might be struggling with Red S, curious to learn more or know you have red s and are looking to recover fast then you can head to www.riseupnutritionrun.com slash red s and download the red s recovery race see how you place and figure out the next steps to recovery plus while there i have a few other great resources for you including three nutrition secrets that every elite athlete swears by and access to our private Facebook community, Female Athlete Nutrition. So again, to gain access to all of this, head to riseupnutritionrun.com slash red S, that's backslash R-E-D-S, and you can gain access and get the help you need fast. Too many girls and women and female athletes struggle with nutrition, but you don't have to any longer. Become fierce, fit, and fueled. Links in the show notes, and I'll see you next time.